You have the case of Roxana Naz, who, whose mother sat on her legs while her brother strangled her to death. She was seven months pregnant, this girl was. She went to my school in Derby. And they killed her because they suspected the child she was carrying wasn't her husband's. And the brother, again, in court, he said, before I strangled my sister to death, I kissed her forehead and I said to her, this was the only way. So the point I'm making is he didn't just have that view when he was in his, as a teenager. He was taught those views from a very young age. Your sister behaves badly. She brings dishonor to this family or even you suspect she's causing shame. You have to deal with her. Welcome to Intensify Humanity podcast. We bring the stories of ordinary human beings with extraordinary journeys. They have been grinded through life in terms of extreme challenges, guilt, shame and things people cannot even imagine. All because they made a choice or decision in life. They are literally not just inspiring but intensifying humanity through unconventional ways to such an extent that other human beings are inspired and pushed to live to their highest potential in life. I, Sundata Sarkar, your host today, will bring about the story of one such human being. I hope you find this episode inspirational. Fighting with the outside world is very much doable when you have the support of your family. But when you are forced to fight with your own family, then the entire world is your battleground. A victim of the brutal orthodox rules and customs of forced marriage, a survivor at her teenage years, a witness of her sister's suicide by setting herself on fire, a warrior to stand up tall against all atrocities, not only against her, but also for all the people irrespective of gender, caste, creed, nationality, in terms of abuse and forced marriages and honor killing. This woman is the epitome of never give up attitude, courage, bravery and faith. Her best-selling books, Shame and Daughters of Shame, have received huge response from all sectors of society. Her charity, Karma Nirvana, works for victims of honor-based abuse and has helped introduce a new law in UK. She has won so many awards, including the prestigious Woman of the Year 2007. She was made an honorary doctor of the University of Derby in 2008. She was awarded as the Pride of Britain Award in 2009 and was named Cosmopolitan Ultimate Woman of the Year in 2010. She is none other than Jaswinder Sanghera. So Jaswinder, thank you so much and welcome to my show, Intensify Humanity. I'm so glad to have you here today. It's good to be here. So, Jaswinder, my first question to you is, you have won so many prestigious awards year after year. But going back to your childhood, it was not a normal childhood that you have. Like, not no other child wishes for that kind of childhood. Could you please share your story a bit with our listeners who don't know about your background or your history about a bit? Yeah, sure. Um. So my father came from India in the 1950s to from Punjab in India and he came to England in search of work like many migrants were invited to the UK to work and he settled in India, he got a job, saw a better life for his children and my mother joined him later on and we were born in England. So I'm one of seven sisters and I have one brother, and we grew up in England. And I would say my childhood growing up was pretty normal. You know, we were safe, we were warm, we were cared for by our family. We went to school, I enjoyed school. But in the background, I watched my sisters, many of them being taken out of school in England when they were 15 years old. To marry a man they had only ever met in a photograph. You see, my parents would call this their arranged marriage, but here in England, under the age of 16, you cannot marry, that's the law. So they would disappear to Punjab in India and they would be married. So I watched this happen to um, three of them, or four of my sisters actually, and one day I came home from school, I was 14 years old. 
And my mother sat me down and she showed me this photograph of a man who she said I was promised to at the age of eight. And I said, Mom, I, I want to go to school. You know, I don't want to marry a stranger. I remember looking at this photograph and thinking, he's shorter than me, he's older than me. And my mother was very clear that um, I was not in a position to say no. And that where I was going, there was no room for an education. So she was very clear. And also she used the fact that, in her opinion, you know, all my sisters had gone through this. Why was I any different? She'd say, you know, my she was saying Punjabi, have you got flowers attached to you? And um, she also used Sikhism, my parents were Sikh. And she said this was written in the Guru Granth Sahib, that you have to marry a stranger, you know, you have to act in a certain way as a woman, you can't do certain things because this is our religion. Now, as a young person, it was difficult for me to question this because these messages were being repeated to me in my family, my community, and in the Godwara where we would go. So saying no was difficult, and I went just back to school until I was 15 and a half. And that's when my parents, I feel, thought that I may run away from home, I would be a risk to their islet, to their honour, and they had to make sure that this promise of marriage was honoured, so they took me out of education and they held me a prisoner in my own home in England. So what I mean by that is they locked me in my bedroom with the lock on the outside of the door. I was left in that room. I had to knock to go to the toilet. Food was brought to that room. So I was held a prisoner and I um, attempted to take my life by overdosing and my family said this wasn't going to make any difference, that you they wouldn't even allow me to have medical treatment. So in the end, I, I can only describe myself as feeling completely isolated. I felt death would be better than life. I felt a range of emotions looking at my father, thinking, how can you do this to me, Dad? Because I love my father dearly and he was softer than my mother. Um, so I agreed to the marriage purely to plan my escape and that allowed me to be unlocked from this room and then I had to take part in the whole marriage preparation of people coming to see the bride, the, the flights were being booked to India, the dress, you know, all the clothes that, you know, my, my mother started filling the trunk with the clothes, the suits, the saris, everything. But for me, that was a moment of this is my opportunity to leave. And one day I saw an opportunity and I ran away from home, I ran out the front door and I just ran as fast as I could to flee from this marriage. You really had an uncommon childhood that no child wishes for and your story depicts everything. But when you decided to stand against this kind of abuse, this kind of torture, in a childhood, you faced so many challenges in life. What is that one thing which did not allow you to give up on your fight and you remain undeterred on your mission? Um, I think for me personally, the one thing I was really mindful of was that when I left home, I never expected my family to tell me that I had two choices. And the one choice was I either come home and marry who they say or I was dead in their eyes. So that meant that if I didn't conform to marriage and to an honor system that prevents a woman from independence, freedom and rights, then they would treat me as somebody who was dead and completely reject me. So in that space, I was missing them. I felt guilty. I felt like I'd done this to my family. I felt all these emotions um, because they disowned me. And one of the things I was mindful of was that we run the risk of something ending up exactly where we began if we don't keep on holding on to the purpose of why you ran away from home. And I held on to that. And what I mean by that is that if I stayed in that place of, feeling guilty, missing my family. Um, I was always in a space where I was self-harming, 
I attempted to take my life again. I was in this state of depression. So I had to move from that place into a place where I started to embrace my independence, my rights, my choices and my freedom, my ability to educate myself, all the things that I couldn't have when I was at home. So I had to keep on in that space and reminding myself that you chose this path and you can have your family, but it means going home and marrying the stranger or you can stay in this place and you can embrace your rights and choices that everybody should be entitled to. And also, you can pass that legacy on to your children in the future. And that was the one thing that kept me from going under. And also, that was the one thing that enabled me to remove all my expectations of a family. So I no longer had expectations of what a mother's meant to be like, a father, a brother, a sister, I let go of all expectations of, of them and existed as if they did not exist, even though I knew they did. So what happened after that? Did you like get yourself a job or some kind of institute? How did you manage to, you know, find yourself a new life? When I ran away from home, I was 16 years old and um, I ran away with somebody who helped me run away from home. And he was um, nine years older than me. But, you know, he helped me and he, he wasn't, it was not Romeo and Juliet, anything like that. He was the person who helped me to run away from home. And when my mother said to me, you know, you either come home and marry or you're dead, I was in this space where I had no idea about life. You know, as an Indian girl growing up in Britain, you know, you don't even go to your hometown by yourself. You, you're chaperoned everywhere to and from school. You don't have any idea or concept of what it's like to live independently so I was incredibly naive too so this person was somebody who helped me through that and you know me and his name was Jesse we did end up getting married in our first um, few weeks of leaving home you know we were homeless you know we slept in the car you know I've slept on a park bench in a park before washed our faces in public toilets you know and then we both ended up getting um, a job but it was difficult you know these were just foundry jobs these were jobs in shops this anything you could do in order to have some money to keep a roof over your head and to feed yourself and um, in the end I did marry him and we had our first daughter Natasha when I was 19 years old and um, again you know having a, a child which you have to remember that when a mother is disowned, the children are also disowned. And that never left me. Um, and from that space, I started to feel strongly about wanting to have a better life for my daughter. But for me, I think when things changed and I stopped going from one job to the other job to the other job, that didn't mean anything. You know, you're just surviving. It was when my... Um, my sister Rubina died and she was forced to marry when she was 15 and my sister suffered a horrific marriage but again within my family within that community I've seen this many times where a woman is suffering domestic abuse the family are encouraging her to go back to the abuser for the sake of Isaac for the sake of honor and my sister went backwards and forwards and even though you know, she showed my family the bruises. She told them she was being abused by this man. They still encouraged her to go back to him. And then my sister set herself on fire and um, she committed suicide and she died. And I think when Rubina died for me, I was 23 at the time, that was a significant turning point where I finally accepted that I had not done anything to my family they had done this to me and Rubina was not coming back. And it was then that there was this transformation, I will say, from feeling I was this victim to owning the fact that I was a survivor and actually I was a victim of their hands, my family, my community. And that was when I decided to start campaigning um, in Rubina's name so that you know her memory will never be forgotten, but also... People recognise in, in Britain, 
that these things are happening to British girls born in this country. These are these things. These things are not just happening in far off countries like India or Pakistan or Bangladesh. You know, they're also happening here in England. So that's when I established the charity Karma Nirvana. Um, you know, in 1993. But you have to remember, I was one voice. And, you know, it was very difficult struggling to try and get people to recognize this was an issue. And the only evidence I had was my sister's case story and my story. And it was whilst I was campaigning that I decided to um, educate myself and go back to college. Um, and you have to remember, I left school with no qualifications. I hadn't read a book in my life until I was 27 years old. Um, but I knew I needed to do this to make a better life for myself, my children, and for this charity, because educating myself was empowering myself. I continued having these different jobs to survive. Um, but for me, my focus became the charity. It became my purpose. It became my mission. And this is not just a story. This is an experience. Just like you mentioned, it is not about a community or a region or a country. It is happening everywhere around the globe. And you were just one voice that time. And we can't even imagine what you had to go through to, you know, make people aware of these circumstances. So is that what became your purpose or your mission in life? That is how Karma Nirvana was born, right? So what is your vision? Well, one thing I always believed was that there were many, many uh, men and women suffering uniquely um, uh, 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 in the face of multiple perpetrators within their family. You know, these victims of forced marriages, child marriages, honor abuse, are being abused by the people who are meant to love them the most, their family. And that suffering is unique to us, but, but we can survive the same way. But we can survive if we have the right support, the right infrastructure, the right laws to protect these people. So, yes, there is a recognition of this being um, a, about universal humanity. But equally, if we look at countries, these countries don't necessarily tackle the issue. Many choose to look the other way. And many choose to sweep it under the carpet. You know, laws didn't exist. So my vision was was to create a charity that spoke to the heart of the experiences of these victims, but also provided support directly for these victims, but also campaigned for new laws in this country and raised such awareness that here in Britain, when people thought and they heard the word forced marriage, they wouldn't say, what's that? They will move it to a place of, I know what this, that, this is, and I know what to do. So for me, the vision was always that, to reduce the isolation of these victims, to prevent this suffering, to hold people to account in the police, education, social services, to make it possible for these um, women across the UK to be able to have an education because we know that child and forced marriages prevent you from having an education. So the charity really started to take force, I suppose, and shape with my um, determination to see this through. And I did. And I did this for 25 years. I only stepped down as the CEO last year in November 2018. And the charity has achieved immense things and this legacy will carry on because Karma Nirvana is one charity but now thousands of people and organizations are taking this on as a cause for themselves but more importantly you know in 1993 nobody was reporting this abuse and Karma Nirvana established the helpline in 2008 that moved from my front room in my house to a national helpline funded by government and since 2008 to 2019 that helpline has received over 78,000 calls for service and currently as I'm speaking to you right now that helpline is receiving over 900 calls every month and these are victims calling these are professionals seeking help 
These are survivors, just like me when I left, who've been disowned by their families. So I, I, if anybody were to ask me what was my most significant achievement, I would say it would be to take an issue that was kept silently hidden by families and communities and, and organisations and government to a place where we've managed to shine a light on it and people now have a voice and they have law. My 10-year campaign created the criminalisation of forced marriage. In Britain now, we have criminal law to tackle this. Police forces are being trained. Many helplines exist. And also other countries are looking to the UK and also making forced marriage a criminal offence. Australia is one. Canada are looking at it. Other European countries are looking at this. And we also have embedded in policy within government, in the government department, a government's forced marriage unit. So you can see how the vision for me was to exactly establish these things. However, I have to say, you know, this has taken 25 years. And I would say this journey is still a journey. You know, this journey hasn't ended. This journey has to continue. So Carmen Nirvana still has a lot to do, but they have a very strong team and a strong place to position themselves from compared to me in 1993 as a lone voice and somebody who had a story to tell and nobody wanted to listen. My words will fall short of your appreciation or thanking you because whatever you have done for this world and for the people is beyond any kind of words. And just like you mentioned that right now it's been more than 25 years this is running and it's tackling the kind of behaviors that we human beings inflict upon other human beings. So these kind of behaviors come from age-old conditioning and belief system. What do you think is the main reason even in 21st century that still fuels this kind of mental conditioning? And how can we change it at the ground level? You see, I always say when I give speeches that, you know, I love my mother and father very, very dearly and I forgive them completely. I know that when my father came to England, he brought with him his belief, his value systems, his culture, his tradition, his religion. You know, he didn't leave these things at Heathrow Airport. He brought them here into England. And when he came here, he was threatened by an, an English culture feeling that this culture is going to dilute my belief and value systems. That's how he felt. And I believe this is how my mother felt too. And, you know, they were only doing what they always did when they were in India, except coming to England. They were here in a space where, you know, women can be educated. You know, women can be more freer and independent. You know, women can marry out of choice, etc. You know, my mother married when she was um, 15. You know, my mother would say, I had to do that. Why are you any different? So the point I'm making is they saw these things as challenges. And I think what my family did was they held on to things very fiercely because they feared losing their their culture and their belief and their value systems and for me um that's not an excuse i understand that and i have an empathy with that but that's not an excuse to deprive your child of rights and education information independence and what my family used in that space to make sure they had their own way, let's say, was they um, used religion and they used tradition as an excuse to abuse us. So my mother would say, you know, you have to behave in a certain way because it's, it's written in the Guru Granth Sahib, you know, you can't cut your hair, you can't talk to boys, you know, men and women are not equal. Lots of these things she would cite as being linked to scripture, which as I've grown older, you know, and I went to university and I did my dissertation on women and Sikhism, I found out for myself, but later on in my life, that actually none of that was true. You know, Sikhism was built on the foundation of equality. You know, it was born out of wanting to abolish the caste system. You know, we had the surnames Kaur and Singh to demonstrate our equality. Women sat with gurus and they 
preached, etc. But but my mother didn't tell us that. It wasn't in her interest to tell us that. So religion was being used as a tool to abuse us. And then tradition was another thing, you know. It's tradition that women don't sit with men. It's tradition that women don't cut their hair or whatever, don't wear makeup, have to be modest. And again, tradition was being used. And, you know, I I remember this quote that Gandhi said. He said that, you know, women would suffer and drown in a sea in the name of tradition. You know, he was saying that, you know, this this excuse is being used to oppress women. And I have to say that, you know, cultural acceptance does not mean accepting the unacceptable. So I think families have to recognize and not be so fearful of allowing their daughters to embrace rights, independence and choices. And I know that my family, when they say they were arranging our marriages, when they were 15, my sisters were 15, they didn't see them as forced marriages. They saw them as the tradition of an arranged marriage. So arranged marriage is a tradition, and I have no issue with that. You know, if two people are consenting, fine. Arranged marriages happen across the whole of the world, and in, in royalty even. But what my family were trying to do was they were trying to keep this tradition of an arranged marriage by forcing my sisters into a marriage. So that's why... That's where it changes, you see. So I think, you know, we we have to recognise that. And what worries me and concerns me here in the UK is that you, the younger generation are taking on the same belief and value systems as our parents. So this is not going to die when the older generation die, because if we're raising our sons and our younger people to have the same belief and value systems where if your sister is seen dating a boy, you must um, abuse her, you know, you must deal with her, you must restore the family's honour. If if young men are being raised in that way, they are going to be raised to be having the same belief and value systems. So that condition then does happen within your family. And therefore, that's where you're going to change it. You see... I'm 54 now and I have three children and I have two grandsons. None of my family talk to them, but they have a life that I've created for them because of the decision I made when I was 16 and they will grow up to be free and independent. This is a completely new generation. So I see myself as protecting my children from that and they will never have to inherit that legacy of abuse. But what families need to do is not be fearful of embracing what Britain has to offer in terms of freedom, rights, independence and democracy and not be fearful of their culture and their belief and value systems being diluted because you can have both. And I say this because my daughter married is married to an Indian Sikh young man, you know, and his grandfather has the same story as my father his grandfather came to England from rural Punjab in the 50s but his family is so different to my family because this young man his name is Anup Anup's family raised him to be educated you know he they said to him his parents said to him and his mother is from India because his father had an arranged marriage his parents said to him son we just want you to be happy. You know, you choose who you want to marry. We don't mind what she is, who she is. We want your happiness. So, you know, his family was a family that I'd never experienced before. And he married my daughter. You know, there are, are families that exist like that. But the thing here, I think, in the UK is those families have to stand up for other families. You see... I believe my father would have accepted my choice of not marrying a stranger if he felt he had the permission of his family and community, if they had accepted him in accepting me. But my father and my mother had to disown me because the community expected them to disown me. If they had accepted me, my family and community would have looked at my parents and said, how can you do that? She shamed your family. So the point I'm making is 
the change has to come from within families, within communities, for families to be brave enough to stand up for their daughters. You have made a very, very important point here, like how tradition has been used as a weapon for generations and generations mm. across all societies. Mm. And you're an example of epitome of courage, resilience and bravery. The way you have created your own beautiful world, the way you have brought up your children and you have set an example there itself, how you know, children should be brought up and how we can change our own mindset. So in aspect to that, along with all the rescue programs that we have, along with all kinds of help or rehabilitation programs we have, do you also think it is worthwhile to have any kind of self-development program as human beings learning for both men and women, since uh, mostly in every part of the world, the emphasis is only on society made norms and rules and rituals so any sort of that kind of self-development program should also be inculcated in schools and colleges somewhere apart from parents teaching their children at home you see i am very very often asked the question how is this going to change how are we going to shift the attitudes and the mindsets of the generations that are still conditioning their children in this way and also, Jasminda, when are you going to start working with communities? You know, when are you going to make that change in communities? This is what I'm often asked. And I always say this, there has always been a seat at the table for the communities to come and sit with me and talk with me to make that change. But they never joined us. In 25 years, the communities have never wanted to work with us. But I'm not going to wait for them to come to that table. Now, I'm not saying you can't do work in communities because I believe, you know, there is the need for that dialogue. So for me, the place to prevent this is going to be in education, in schools. I believe that we have to be in schools and we have to raise awareness about the right to choose who you want to marry, the right to independence, freedom and choices, etc., you know, human rights, how, you know, we all have these rights. The reason I say that is because those people who are conditioned in this way will believe they are deprived of these rights because their religion, traditional culture doesn't allow the, them to have these rights. So for them, it will be normal. You know, I've, I've been in classrooms and spoken across many schools in the UK, and I've met 13-year-old girls who say, but I'm going to going in the summer holidays to marry my husband and she's 13 and she just thinks that is normal, you know. So I do believe we need to have programs in schools, in colleges. We constantly need to be raising this awareness. And why we have to be in education in school is because our most affected victim who could potentially be a victim of child marriage or forced marriage or honor abuse is a young person because the conditioning of that person starts within the family. We know parents have power, that powerful relationship. So this is where a young person will learn their rights and their wrongs. You know, their norms will come from there. You know, when I think about um, the murders that I have seen in this country, what we call honour killings, what I call dishonourable killings, these, these people um, that kill, some of them are brothers who kill their sisters you know, Shafilia Ahmed was murdered by her mother and father because she was seen as somebody who wanted too much um, freedom and independence. You know, this was an A-star student at school who wanted to be a lawyer, and that was a huge challenge for the family. All her siblings, you know, brother and sisters, watched while her parents stuffed a carrier bag down her throat and suffocated her to death. But later on, you hear the brother in court who speaks about how, you know, she deserved this, you know, and then you have, and this is a British-born person, you have the case of Roxana Naz, who, whose mother sat on her legs while her brother strangled her to death. She was seven months pregnant, this girl was. She went to my school in Derby, and they killed her because they suspected the child she was carrying wasn't her husband's. And the brother, again, in court, he said, before I strangled my sister to death, I kissed her forehead and I said to her, this was the only way. So the point I'm making is 
he didn't just have that view when he was in his as a teenager. He was taught those views from a very young age. Your sister behaves badly. She brings dishonor to this family, or even you suspect she's causing shame. You have to deal with her. So, you know, we need to uncondition these young people in their minds. And the way Calm Nirvana have done this is we have developed a school program, and this goes out to schools now in the UK. Um, in the UK, we have an inspection body called Ofsted, and I've worked with them to train their inspectors who go into schools to inspect schools. The other thing I developed last year in 2018 was a play and in theatre called Beyond Shame, because I believe theatre is a space that can offer an education, you know, to educate people. And that play has now, is now touring across schools in the UK. And again, that's another form of educating. But, you know, the play is rooted in the experiences of um, men and women and shame and art, dishonor, all those things, um, which will speak to people. So, yeah, I do believe that we need to have a counter narrative, a counter message, and that has to be through our schools and colleges. Yes. And these incidences, like you have seen for yourself in front of you, you've experienced yourself. The sad part is this is happening as we speak. This is happening at some part of the other of the, any country, any place, any region in the world. And uh, you have also written a book based on your experience, Shame, right? And it is another bestseller. So you have put out some message out there for your readers in your book. Can you share that? Yeah. I mean, for me... Um... I remember I was somebody that had not read a book until I was 27 years old and I educated myself at college and then I went to university feeling that I couldn't possibly get a degree, thinking, you know, because you, you lack self-worth. This whole experience of being disowned by your family and being rejected cast a shadow of doubt on you as a human being, your confidence it's bound to shake that, you know. Um, but, you know, I came to a point where, you know, I accepted that their actions hurt me deeply, but I also accepted that this experience has taught me something. And there were some things that I wasn't going to accept. And one of those things was, I'm not going to give up. And I decided to write this all down. Because, again, for me, writing is extremely cathartic, but equally it's telling the story for other people to hear the story which ultimately raises awareness in a different form so again for me writing the book shame which is my personal story enabled me to reach a bigger audience to raise awareness and i remember when my editor rang me and said to me jasvinda um you're in the best sales chart you know you're i don't know number two or three he said and uh I remember immediately thinking, wow, imagine how many people are reading about this issue. And I remember him saying, just for one minute, just appreciate the fact that you are a bestseller. And I said, no, imagine how much this is going to make a significant difference to the lives of people. And the book, Shame, was my story, yes, Rabina's story, the story of a family, but equally, it's a story of feeling helpless, but absolutely surviving. So in the story, you see the journey of one person, but that person's story is one of many. And as I was telling the story, I believed fundamentally that this is the story of thousands of other people, not just my story. You know, I'm not special here. This is the story. And I'm telling the story, not just for me, but for many other people. And actually, the book created a huge dialogue and a shift in awareness. It was debated in the House of Lords here in our government. And um, the Prime Minister, David Cameron, said, you know, this was only three years ago, that the, the book Shame turned his head on the issue of forced marriage. And this is why he created a criminal offence. That is a groundbreaking 
revolution the change that you've brought and yes your book has touched millions of hearts and i want to spread this to more of our listeners who are listening for the first time that go and read the book you are simply going to you know understand what is going on there in the world and maybe some of you might be going through that the, and the the thing for me was after shame i wrote daughters of shame because daughters of shame is a book about other women and there's also a male story in there and it was important that i wrote a book followed by shame about other other people and their experiences and again the book clearly speaks to their experiences but the important thing to recognize is it speaks to their survival you know giving up is not an option you know they survive and it gives other people hope and that's really important yes yes and i'm sure those who have come across your book it is not just a silver lining for them and i'm sure they also have understood what they need to do actually in life because everything if you take a decision everything is in our hand it is just we have to step out of that fearfulness yeah absolutely and i understand that in this space there is a huge conflict yes because it's their family you know you love your family you want your family to be proud of you you know you don't want to let your family down you you are respectful to your family you're thankful to your family your family will remind you they raised you they they supported you they allowed you to go to university etc but in a way their family are saying this to you in order for you to give them something back and the thing i will say to people is you know unconditional love does not work like that you know i had not experienced unconditional love within my family but i have now and i do now you know that is where you love your child regardless you know you protect them you help them with their mistakes you help them with their choices and when my family let me go completely i had to reframe my thoughts you know you cannot convince people to love you even your family you desperately want them to love you you know but you cannot convince force them to love you as a mother or father this is an this is an absolute rule no one will ever give you love because you want him or her to give it to you real love is unconditional it moves freely in both directions so i learned not to waste my time and energy on anything else for my family because i couldn't force them to love me the point i'm making is that i want people to know that when they're in this place of conflict they're not doing anything wrong i want to remind them that self love is important too you know and you cannot be a person that takes on the guilt and the shame um as your family would want you to if that makes sense because i say that in a space of having experienced all the emotional blackmail from my family because i didn't marry this stranger you know my mother would say you know i will die of a heart attack and it will be your fault your sister's marriages will be ruined forever and it will be your fault you know that's not love that that's designed to make you feel guilty that's designed to make you feel pressured that's designed to make you feel so worn out and run down that you give in to the pressure i didn't and sadly when i left home my younger sister was forced to marry the man that i was promised to um and that is um very sad for me to to feel that and she suffered in that marriage she did leave him in the end but again point is you know the legacy keeps on continuing and continuing doesn't it so what i'm asking people to recognize is don't just rely on your family to change rely on yourself in changing in that space because as with me you could make a significant change and shift for your children in your future so sometimes i will say to people um i've now supported thousands of victims if you're not going to do it for yourself then do it to shift a generation do it for the future and i can own that now because you know, all my three children are very independent and they love life and i have grandchildren and you know 
they they I look at them and I say, yeah, you know that decision I made when I was 16, that was the most difficult decision I made in my entire life, was the right one. And they may not have family on my side, their mother's side, it's blank. But that has not affected their lives, you know. They have unconditional love and they are stronger and more resilient because their mother is. Absolutely. And just like you mentioned that word unconditional love, if we can say in one word, it can be unconditional love means freedom yeah. and not bondage. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So you yourself are a writer. So now let me ask you, uh, you started reading books at around 27 years of age. So what is your favorite book and who is your favorite author? So the first book that I ever read was by Maya Angelou, um, who is one of my favorite writers. And I did it for A-Level English. And sometimes they say, you don't choose the book, the book chooses you. And that's absolutely true because her book was her story. And it is called, I Know Why a Caged Bird Sings. And what the book is rooted in is in Maya's experience of very traumatic childhood that actually um, led her to become mute, not speaking anymore, and her growth and survival. And basically, this the title of the book is about this bird who is completely caged, but this bird still has the ability to sing. Somewhere within this bird, there is something that gives it hope, and he's not going to allow this cage to consume him her, sorry, the bird still has the ability to think outside the cage and sing. And that whole book is about her journey and survival. And it really spoke to me. It spoke to me on so many different levels. It was my story, but a different story, if that makes sense. Because every one of us has a story. Every one of us has a story. It's unique to us. But there are some commonalities in each one of our stories. And those commonalities can be linked to pain, loss, fear, grief, longing, missing, all those emotions, which is what shame my book is about. Um, so she, her book shifted my mindset. And in fact, it was her book that started to um, enable something within me to start writing my own journals. And I, I used to keep a diary from the age of 16. And I used to write things down in my diary and diary. And then because I could feel this movement happening within me from being educated, I started to keep journals. And that actually really helped me with my book, Shame, because I was capturing all these feelings and moments. But more importantly, I was letting out what I kept within me for so many years. Because when you are in pain, what you sometimes do is you shut that pain out and you don't want to deal with it. So you hide it under a stone or you, you keep it somewhere within you and you push it down and you don't deal with it. Actually writing it down on paper was enabling me to allow it to leave me privately, you know, not telling anybody about this, but it's letting it out as opposed to keeping it within. And that actually, that process also led me to uh, feeling freer to talk about it um, and that's when I did you know I started to share with people what had happened to me instead of keeping it as a secret um, you know I started to have counseling personally which helped my journey too so you know her book um, my Angelos I know why cage bursting is something that um, I believe was the book that um, started a different journey for me which is why I feel immense pride when people say to me I read shame and it changed my life I read shame and it's made me think completely differently I read shame and I'm a teacher in a school and I'm going to make sure that I identify these girls at risk you know the power of the narrative for it to achieve that as an outcome as I felt with the first book I read, is something that I'm immensely proud of. I remember going through um, Heathrow Airport um, and, you know, you go through the airport, you show somebody your passport and I showed this, this, she was an Indian woman and I showed she was the guard behind the desk and I gave her my passport and uh, she looked at my picture and she looked up at me and she got very emotional and um, her eyes started to fill with tears and I said to her, are you okay? You know, I 
thought, is there something wrong, you know, with my passport? And she said, you're Jasvinda Sangera. She said, I want you to know that I read your book, she said, and I saved my, the lives of my children. It gave me the courage to leave my husband and me and my daughters are safe and happy now. And she gave me a big hug. And I remember feeling this immense sense of, I had something to do with that. And I felt, wow, you know, and, and, and I was so pleased for her, I have to say. And then here's another two children who we've saved, you know, and that, that's powerful because, you know, it's like the power of any of us. Many of us have picked up a book, I'm sure, and we felt really moved by it. And to be moved to the point of you, making you move something within you, I feel, is the, the, the greatest compliment any author could ever have. That is beautiful, Jaswinder. And just like you mentioned, it was one of the most powerful feelings. And especially when you change lives, when you transform lives, when you save lives, nothing, nothing bigger than that on this planet. So my next question is, if not a social and global leader, what would Jaswinder be? <laughs> okay, well, thank you for referring to me as a global social leader, first of all. Um, what would I be? I, when I was younger, I loved school. I enjoyed reading. Um, my education, as you know, was cut short. But when people ask me, what would I want to be when I grow up? Um, I used to say, an air hostess, to stay with me because I was 14 at the time. And I said that because I knew the world was bigger than me. And I saw this image of these people going on these airplanes and they could travel the whole world. So it wasn't about being an air hostess. It was about seeing the world. That's what it was about. And I saw this as a form of escapism. Um, and then as I got older, I think I want to travel. I want to see the world. I want to see and feel all the different lives of people. And I want to have an insight you know I I did not see the sea until I was 18 years old and I was at a time when I was 18 when I was really missing my family and I remember looking at the sea for the first time in my life and feeling a huge overwhelming sense of hope that moved me to tears and thinking wow if this is on the planet what else is on the planet so and it gave me hope, actually, and it stopped me from going back home because you constantly want to return back to your family. So I would be an explorer. I would be that person like um, David Attenborough, and I would go out and I would go and explore all the indigenous populations, sit with the Aborigines, have those conversations and feel life, uh, not, not life that has been shaped by modern times, but I'm talking about rural cultures, the Native Americans, I would be an explorer. There you go, Samdutta, if that's, um, and connect with the earth and connect with people. That's beautiful. <laughs> Thank you so much for that answer. I, I can connect with, because I myself am I'm an explorer, the way you explained, right, when you see the sea, it's so vast, it's so open, you feel insignificant in front of it. Like if that that is on the planet, then what else is on the planet absolutely and i swore to myself told myself at 18 one day i am going to have a house by the sea you know one of the things that is really important to do for any human being but certainly for those that have been thrown out and your family say you'll never amount to anything is to hold on to your vision to speak things into your life and i used to speak all sorts of things into my life one day i am going to write a book one day I'm going to live by the sea one day, you know, and I spoke all these different things into my life. One day I'm going to pass my driving test, whatever. And I can say last year, we finally, me and my partner, we finally bought our house by the sea. So I live by the sea now. So, you know, they, the kind of circle is narrowing in terms of achieving that goal. And so, yeah, the sea is on our doorstep and um, we get to live by the sea and I get to, see it every single day and embrace it and uh, share this with my children and my my wonderful partner who I've finally met somebody where I can experience unconditional love and regard because 
one of the things I think survivors have to be um, kind to themselves about is that it's okay to have past relationships that haven't worked out. What is a relationship? You know, we were expected to be thrown into a marriage uh, to this stranger and that's it. That's your relationship. So when I was rejected by my family, I had a I had no experience of relationships. I was incredibly vulnerable, you know, and I am divorced. I've been divorced twice. But the thing here is that in those relationships, I was still finding myself. And, you know, this is why I say self-love is so important. You, how can you love somebody until you start loving yourself as a human being? Um, so I'm finally in that space where I feel a greater sense of peace in myself and now I have something to give and and John and me he's my partner you know we share our lives our vision um, together in a completely different way and that's something that I've never experienced and I'm 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 going to love every minute and embrace every second that is beautiful that is beautiful it just created an image in front of me a visual image and it's so beautiful that sea you know living by the sea and living the kind of life and one of the most important thing that you have definitely pointed out is self-love mm. it's absolutely essential yes 100% and I keep on saying this to people that you know we all have the capacity to feel Okay, we all have the capacity to have compassion. You know, the most terrible and beautiful and most interesting things can happen in a life. But whatever happens to you belongs to you. The most terrible things, don't allow them to define you. You know, enable those experiences, make them your experiences, but, but ha use those experiences to create a new, better reality. You know, feed it to yourself. Even if it feels impossible to swallow, let it nurture you because it will. Equally, if you allow it to consume you and to make you feel so negative and, and make you feel like you're a victim, that's what will happen to you. It will consume you like that. But use the experience to shape you. Um, don't let it, I'll never let my experience go. You know, that will stay, stay with me for life. And sometimes I have days where you know, I do reflect on it and they do make me feel low, but then I have to quickly find a strategy to come out of that. But what I'm saying is that's okay. You know, be kind to yourself. You know, you've gone through something in life that not many people go through. You know, it's trauma, but trauma does not have to define you and pull you down. Tra trauma can be something you can use to actually rise so tall that you will surprise yourself. I certainly have surprised myself. Um, you know, I was the, the young woman who went to university thinking, what, me? I could get a degree? I remember going on to the university grants thinking it was a college. And when the person told me behind the desk, no, this is not a college, it's a university, I ran off the grounds. I thought, no way, I can't do this. No way, you know. I did, I, something, something within me, you can surprise yourself. And I did, I got a first actually. And then the only one in my family to go to university, you know, and I can tell my children that story to pass it on to them. So, you know, life is what we make it, it truly is. But the starting point has to be that you're free. You cannot, your starting point cannot be being a prisoner to a system that is going to hold you back. The starting point has to be your freedom and you build on that. Beautiful. Thanks for sharing that. So just wonder where and how can our listeners connect with you? Well, um, they can go to my website, which is my name, jasvindasangera.com. That's my website. Um, the books are on there. I also have an audio book for people that I know some people don't like to read. And that's fine, too. So, you know, you can listen to it. And it is actually me speaking. Um and if you go onto the website, there is an email on there as well, which you can connect to me via the email and everybody will get a response. We ensure that. And Carmen Nirvana, you know, Carmen Nirvana is um, an organization, a charity which 
is still dear to my heart and I constantly have my hand over the charity and I'm with them all the time if they need me. So the website, Carmen Nirvana, which is www.carmenavana.org.uk, you know, go to the website and read about survivors, read about their work. You can become a friend of the charity internationally. You don't have to be based in the UK and they will keep you in touch. You know, you could ask them for advice or guidance if you are going through anything right now or somebody you care about is. You can ask them for help and they will offer you that guidance over email. So, you know, there are many ways. And if you go to my website, you'll see the kind of things that I'm doing and um, you'll see the kind of new things that I'm thinking about doing too. <laughs> so anyone wants to who wants to be a part of your initiative or be a part of Karma Nirvana, they will go through, uh, they can get the information through that website itself, right? Yeah. yeah. All right. Absolutely. So what next, Jaswinder? Like, what are you planning to do after you have stepped down as the CEO and what next in life? Um, well, you know, I stepped down almost a year now. And the first thing I wanted to do was just take some time out. You know, Carmen Havana was not a job. Um, my children, I have three children. They always say, Mom, there were four people in our family and, and the other was Carmen Havana. I'm sure my son, his first word was Carmen Havana. Um, so... It, it consumes you and it was time for me to let go um, and people are taking that forward. So what for me now? Um, well, I'm still going to write and I have a book in mind that I am currently exploring. Um, I've written Shame, Daughters of Shame and Shame Travels when I went to India. The story I want to write now is about men. I want to write Sons of Shame. Might not be That might not be the title, but I really do feel that there is an important story here to tell about how we raise our sons and how men have a huge role to play in the fight for gender equality and also to share the stories of men um, who also experience forced marriages and honor abuse in a different way because of their position as men and sons in families that revere sons. Um, I also have this vision, um, Sondata, so think about this, this is a vision, but visions can be actualized into realities. I have the vision to have to see shame as a movie. I'd like to see a film. And again, my purpose for that is because we know films reach people globally with Netflix now and, you know, television the way it is. So I'm holding on to that because I believe that would be a huge possibility and for it to be translated in all the languages in the world. I mean, my book, Shame, has been translated into eight languages, including Japanese. So people are reading it, but I'd like to see the issue on the big screen. That's what I'd like to see. Um, and within that space, I want to have a work-life balance. You know, I want to have time walking my dog and by the sea with John and my grandchildren and um, doing the things that I want to do. Um, but I have just recently taken on a role um, which allows me to do other things because it's so many days a year. And that role is the chairperson, the Leeds, Leeds is a city here in the UK where Carmen Nirvana is based. And it's the safeguarding chair for the Leeds Children's Partnership. So I've taken that role on because, um, you know, children and young people are where we have to make a significant difference to their lives. And this role enables me to have a say in terms of ensuring that children and young people are protected. They um, are also enabled to achieve their aspirations, their goals in life. So as a city, Leeds City has this vision to make it a child-friendly city to see that all children and young people aspire and achieve in this city. Children who are abused in child abuse cases and or, or are killed, lessons are learned and etc. So I have my hand on that now and my grandchildren live in Leeds as well. Um, so I'm looking forward to taking on that role, which I've only just started, to see what kind of significant difference I can make in the city to help the city achieve its goal of becoming the first UK's child-friendly city. That is beautiful, Jaswinder. And the point that you mentioned that sh regarding the book, 
you're going to write on men and that is going to be groundbreaking because that is the need of the hour for yeah. gender equality across the globe and of course your book <laughs> that's a very very much possibility to be turned into a movie i don't yeah. know about other uh, you know country movies but i can definitely say about hindi movies because nowadays our indian movies are so much evolved in terms of bringing out real stories on the big screen that people are getting more and more aware of it and i'm sure your stories up on the line well i believe that too and i have operated all my life in faith you know um i believe faith i believe is believing in something that you don't have yet that's what faith is but having that conviction and having that faith that is the thing that defines people and people achieving yes yes so i'm sure we'll see that in the big picture very soon thank you and all the best to your all the upcoming initiatives and thank you so much for all your contributions to the world for humanity and you know words will fall short it will be not enough to thank you enough for whatever you have done and uh, i wholeheartedly you know wish you all the best and thank you thank you so much for coming to my show and giving me this time and discussing and answering to my questions with so patiently in such detail and thank you so much for sharing your story with us no thank you also sandata for telling the stories you know what you do is incredibly important because my hope is and i believe this is your hope too that people are inspired by these stories to see beyond their physical existence and wherever they are in their life at that moment in time so thank you for creating the platform to share the stories thank you yes and that is also my wish and you know vision is the more stories reach people the more number of people the world is going to be a better place very soon if we can act upon it thank you for tuning into my show that was jaswinder sanghera a woman who went against all the norms of her community religion tradition and the so called beliefs and faiths that entirely changed not only her destiny but also all the people whom she has helped in her journey all along she has not only created a beautiful life for herself and her family but has given hopes and real changes in the lives of other people who have gone through that kind of abuse in terms of domestic violence on a killing and forced marriages she is intensifying humanity to her best possible extent i hope you found this episode inspirational 